The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. blind but now I see If you're watching on video you can see that in the background Ben is working he's an engineer trying to figure out all the configurations for the new board that we have which I praise God for I pray you can hear clearly, both on radio and internet. 
You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray from the National Prayer Chapel. I'm beginning a new series today. John Bunyan wrote that incredible allegory, number one in the English language, Pilgrim's Progress. It's the story of Christian as he fell under deep conviction in the city of destruction and he didn't know what to do about it. His conviction came from reading the Word of God, and as he would read it, he saw that his sin would destroy him and that the city was going to be burned. He didn't know what to do about it. He had a heavy burden on his back. Finally, in desperation, he cried out, What shall I do? An evangelist heard him and said, Why are you crying out? Well, I have this burden on my back, and this city's going to be burned. The evangelist, evangelist told him to go up the mountain to the narrow gate, and he did and entered into that gate. Allegorically, he became a follower of Jesus. Now, as the story unfolds, they have many different experiences in the valley of humility, in the valley of the shadow of death, the hardship mountain. I want to share with you specifically, however, one chapter today. It will set the base for the rest of the week. It's chapter 10, if you have the book, Prisoners of Despair. Many of you live in a dungeon. You're discouraged. There's despair in your heart. You're trying to figure out, what do I do? The finances are short. You may be sick. Whatever the difficulty is, you're finding it very hard to deal with. And you're saying, I can't live like this. Well, it's time to come out of the dungeon. There is a way out. I want to share with you how they got in the dungeon, and I suspect it's the same way you got in the dungeon. This is John Bunyan writing in Pilgrim's Progress. As you know, it was first published in 1678, and it's been published continuously since that time. He writes, Now I saw in my dream that they had not journeyed far before the river parted away from their path. This made them sad, yet they dared not go out of the way. As their path proceeded away from the river, it became rough, and their feet were sore from the travels. So the souls of the pilgrims were much discouraged because of the way, and they wished for a smoother path. Soon they saw a little way ahead of them a pleasant-looking field called Bypath Meadows. It sat on the left side of the road, with a stile marking an entrance into it. Then said Christian to Hopeful, If this meadow is right next to the way, let us step aside into it, and let us walk there. Then they went to the stile to take a look and saw a path that followed alongside their rough way, just on the other side of the fence. 
Ah, this is what I was hoping for, said Christian. Here is an easier way to go. Come, good hopeful, let's take this smooth path that follows right next to our difficult one. But what if this path should lead us out of the way? Hopeful asked. Well, that's not likely, said Christian. Look, look, it goes right next to our present path. So Hopeful, persuaded by Christian, followed after him over the stile into Bypath Meadows. After they'd started walking on the new path, they found it very easy on their feet, and looking ahead they saw a man walking in the same direction that they were going. His name was Vain Confidence. They called after him and asked him, Where's the path leading? He yelled back to them, To the celestial gate! See, said Christian, didn't I tell you? So they followed vain confidence down the path, but soon the night, the night came. Darkness fell and they lost sight of him. As for vain confidence, who could not see the way ahead of him, he fell into a deep pit that was put there on purpose by the prince of those grounds to catch vain glorious fools. Vain confidence was morally injured, mortally injured, as he fell into the pit. Now Christian and Hopeful heard him fall, so they called up ahead to see if he was all right. But there was no answer. All they could hear was the sound of groaning. Then Hopeful asked, Now what should we do? But Christian was silent, regretting that he had led him out of the way. Then began a torrential rain with fierce thunder and lightning. The water rose, and Hopeful groaned in himself, saying, Oh, that I had kept on the true way! Who could have thought that this path would lead us astray? I was afraid it might from the very first, said Hopeful. That is why I gave you a gentle caution. I would have spoken more firmly, but you are older than I. Good brother, don't be offended, Christian said. I'm sorry. I've urged you out of the way, and I've put you into such imminent danger. Pray, my brother, forgive me. I did not do it with an evil intent. Be comforted, my brother. I forgive you, and I believe that this will work out for good. Christian responded, I'm glad I'm traveling with a, a merciful brother, but we must not stand here. Let's try to go back where we left the true path. But, good brother, let me lead the way. But Christian said, No, no, if you please, let me go ahead of you so that I can be the first to meet any danger since I'm the one to blame for our present circumstances. No, 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 replied Hopeful. You should not go first, since your mind is troubled. You might lead us in the wrong direction. Just then, they heard an encouraging voice say, Set your heart toward the highway. Even the way that you went, turn again. But by this time, the waters had risen. It was very dangerous to go back the way they had come. I thought then that it would be easier to go out of the way that we are on, but, but I see we have risked everything 
But despite the risk, they began tracing their steps back to where they had first encountered the wrong path. After nearly a dozen near drownings and because of the darkness, it was impossible to see anything. They decided to find a place of shelter where they could wait out the storm until daybreak. After they'd found a suitable shelter, they soon fell sound asleep in utter exhaustion and sorrow. Not far from the place where they lay sleeping stood a castle called Doubting Castle. The owner of that castle was Giant Despair, and it was on the grounds that they were now sleeping on. When Giant Despair got up in the early morning and began walking up and down in his fields, he came across Christian and Hopeful asleep on his grounds. With a grim and surly voice, he told them, Awake! And he asked them who they were and what they were doing on his property. They told him that they were pilgrims, that they had lost their way. Then said the giant, This night you have trespassed on my property by trampling and lying on my grounds, and therefore you must come along with me. So they were forced to go, because he was much stronger than they. The pilgrims also had little to say for themselves, knowing that they were at fault. The giant therefore drove them before him and forced them into his castle. And when Christian and Hopeful, they found themselves suddenly in a dark, nasty, and stinking dungeon. Here they lay from Wednesday morning until Saturday night without one bit of bread or a drop of water or a ray of light or anyone to inquire about them. So Christian and Hopeful found themselves far from friends and acquaintances in a hopeless and pitiable condition. Christian had doubt, and he had sorrow, and he was constantly reminding himself that it was his ill-advised counsel that had created the present crisis. Now, Giant Despair had a wife whose name was Distrust. When he'd gone to bed, he had told his wife that he had taken a couple of prisoners and cast them into the dungeon for trespassing on his grounds. Then he asked her what she thought he should do to them. Distressed, inquired about the prisoners' identities, their homeland, and their destination. He told them that they were pilgrims bound for the celestial city. Well, she advised him to beat them without mercy when he got up in the morning. The next morning, when Giant Despair arose, he went out and found a short, thick club made of a crab tree. Then he went down into the dungeon where Christian and Hopeful were imprisoned. And there he began beating them, ranting at them as if they were dogs. Christian and Hopeful did not say a word in their defense. Then Giant Despair pounced on them and beat them again, mercilessly. The beatings were so bad that when it was finally over, they were unable to help themselves or even get up off the dungeon's cold stone floor. Feeling satisfied with the torment he had inflicted, Giant Despair withdrew, leaving the two prisoners to console each other in their misery 
and to mourn the rest of the day with sighs and bitter lamentations because of their distress and pain. The next night, distrust discovered that the prisoners were still alive. She advised Giant Despair to counsel them to take their own lives. So when morning came, the giant went in a very surly manner as before, and seeing that they were very sore from the previous day's beatings, he told them that since they were never likely to come out of the dungeon, there was only one way of escape, and that was to make an end of themselves, either with a knife, a rope, or poison. For why, said he, should you choose life, seeing it's attended with so much bitterness and pain? But they asked him instead to let them go. Hearing their humble request, he scowled and rushed to make an end of them himself. However, before he could lay hands upon them, he fell into one of his fits. It happened occasionally that in sunshiny weather, giant despair lost for a time the use of his hands. Being thus afflicted, at this time the giant withdrew and left them to consider their predicament. Then the prisoners considered whether it was best to take his counsel or not. And this is what they said to each other. Brother, said Christian, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I don't know which is best, to live like this or to die and escape this misery. My soul chooses strangling rather than life and the grave seems more desirable than this dungeon. Shall we be ruled by this giant? But Hopeful suggested, indeed, our present condition is dreadful, and death would be a relief. But still, let us consider that the Lord of the country to which we are going has said, You shall do no murder. And if not to another man, how much more, then, are we forbidden to take the giant's counsel to kill ourselves? Besides, he who kills another can only commit murder upon a body. But for someone to kill himself is to kill body and soul at the same time. Besides, my brother, you talk about the ease of the grave. But you have forgotten the hell to which murders go. For no murder has eternal life. And let us consider again the outcome of this is not in the hands of giant despair. Other prisoners like us, as far as I can tell, which have been captured by the giant, have managed to escape. Who knows but that God, who made the world, may soon cause giant despair to die, or that the giant may forget to lock us in, or that he may have another one of his fits and lose the use of his limbs. If that ever happens again, I'm determined to gather all of my courage and try to quickly escape. I was a fool not to attempt an escape during his first fit. So, my brother, let us be patient and endure for a while longer. The time may come when we have an opportunity to escape. But let's not become murderers. Hopeful's words helped calm Christian's mind. And so they continued together in the dark that day in their sad 
and doleful condition. That evening, the giant went down to the dungeon again to see if his prisoners had taken his counsel, but he found them still alive, though barely. Since the prisoners had had no bread or water and were badly wounded from their beatings, they could do little but breathe. Their weak breath was all the sign of life needed to send the giant into a frenzy of rage again, and he told them that since they had disobeyed his counsel, it would be worse with them than if they'd never been born. At this they trembled greatly, and Christian fell into a faint. When he recovered, they renewed their discourse about the giant's counsel and whether they should take it or not. Christian seemed inclined toward accepting the giant's advice, but Hopeful was not willing, and made his second reply to Christian as follows. My brother, don't you remember how valiant you have been in the past? Apollyon could not crush you, nor were you defeated by all the things you heard and saw or felt in the valley of the shadow of death. Consider all the hardship and terror and bewilderment you've already gone through, and now you're full of fear. Don't you see that though I am far a far weaker man than you by nature, I'm in this dungeon with you. The giant has wounded me as well as you and has cut off my bread and water as well as yours. I also mourn without the light. But let us exercise a little more patience. Remember how you conducted yourself in front of the men in Vanity Fair and were afraid neither of the chain nor the cage nor even a bloody death. So let us at least to avoid the shame that is unbecoming a Christian. Bear this with patience as well as we can. That same night as Giant Despair went to bed, his wife asked about the prisoners and if they'd taken his counsel. And he replied, They're sturdy rogues. They would rather endure tremendous pain than do away with themselves. Distrust replied, Take them into the castle yard tomorrow and show them the bones and skulls of those whom you've already killed. Make them believe that before the week's end you will tear them in pieces just as you've done to their fellow travelers before them. So when the morning came, the giant took his prisoners into the castle yard and showed them the bones and skulls according to his wife's instructions. These, said he, were pilgrims just as you are, and they trespassed on my grounds just as you have. When I saw fit, I tore them to pieces. I will do the same to you within ten days. Go now, go back to your den. With that, he beat them all the way down to the dungeon where they lay all day, that Saturday in their misery, as they had before. When night had fallen, and when distrust and her husband had gone to bed, they resumed their conversation about the prisoners. The old giant wondered why he could not, by his blows or his counsel, bring Christian and hopeful to an end. His wife replied, I fear that they live in hope that someone will come to rescue them, or perhaps they have picklocks hidden by which they hope to escape. What do you think so, my dear? asked the giant. 
I will search them in the morning. Around midnight, Christian and Hopeful began to pray. They continued till almost the break of day. Shortly before the sun came up, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out into his passionate speech. What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I might instead walk in freedom and liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that I will use now and open any lock in Doubting Castle. Oh, that's good news, said Hopeful. Good brother, take it out. Let's try it right now. Christian pulled it out. He began trying to unlock the dungeon door. The door's bolts, as he turned the key, came loose, and the door flew open with ease. Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then Christian went to the outer door that leads into the castle yard. With his key, he opened that door also. After that, he went to the iron gate, for that also had to be opened. And though that lock was very hard, the key still opened it. Then they thrust open the gate to make a speedy escape. But the gate, as they opened it, made a loud creaking noise that awakened giant despair. He rose hastily to pursue his prisoners, but just then suffered another of his fits, which made his limbs fail and ended his pursuit. Then Christian and Hopeful pressed on eagerly and came to the king's highway, where they were safe because they were out of giant despair's jurisdiction. When they'd gone back over the stile, they began to consider what they should do to warn other pilgrims after them who might enter the stile and be taken prisoner by giant despair. They agreed to erect a pillar, engraving it with this sentence, Over this stile is the way to Doubting Castle, which is kept by giant despair who despises the king of the celestial country and seeks to destroy his holy pilgrims. Many, therefore, who followed after, read what was written and escaped the danger. Having done this, Christian and Hopeful continued on their journey, singing as they went. I ask you, have you been staying in Doubting Castle? I find many live in Doubting Castle, but they're not on a stone floor. They're not without food and water, but they are beaten up by the devil. They know they're on the wrong path. They don't have the blessing of Jesus in their life. They live with a guilty conscience. They know things are not right between them and Jesus. And there is, for many, a low level of utter despair, discouragement, hopelessness. 
And so they medicate themselves with television. They medicate themselves with YouTube channels, with with entertainment, with professional sports. They entertain themselves with foolish hobbies, always finding something to do or something to watch or something to eat. But their souls are not at peace. Their hearts are not quiet before Almighty God. Is that your condition today? I'm telling you, there is a way of escape. That way of escape is found in the second letter of Peter. I'm going to begin reading for you in verse 2. This is Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's be very clear about something. Jesus does not want you living in the devil's dungeon. He wants you to escape. He wants you to walk free. He loves you. And many of you have had very painful experiences. I have. I lost a precious wife to cancer. I've lost friends. I've had those I consider to be friends turn against me and walk away and cut me off with curses, with judgments, simply because I followed the way of the cross and I made them uncomfortable and their heart was filled with accusations against me. Jesus, on the other hand, comes in grace, and grace is not a blanket to cover our misery. And I say that to you again. Grace is not a blanket to cover our misery. Where we then self-medicate with drugs. Television is a drug. The internet is a drug. For many, the cell phone is a drug of choice or you're actually on alcohol or marijuana or one of the harder drugs. Some of you today are on cocaine or heroin. That's not what God wants for you. He wants you free, and he's willing to set you free. So he comes offering grace, and grace is what God gives to us to give us the power in the blood of Jesus and to give us the understanding by the blood of Jesus for how we can walk clean and free. Now, at the same time, he brings us shalom. He brings us peace. He brings us provision. Today, I have two people I care about. They're homeless. They live in a very rickety old van. They're parked in a in a parking lot when they need something they call me yesterday i 
took them some money for gas. I took them some cylinders so that they have an ability to cook their food in this rickety, old, ugly, dirty van. Breaks my heart they choose to live in that filthy dungeon. But I've tried to speak with them about Jesus. I've invited them to come to church, and they came one time. But they really don't want Jesus. They would rather have their misery. You know, some people just want to be miserable. I ask him, have you found a job? No, I'm taking care of her. They live together. They're not married. She's in her 70s, almost blind, miserable, cursing, swearing. I mean, it's one of the ugliest situations I've seen, and yet I can't deliver them. They will not be delivered. They love their misery. Some of you don't live in that kind of squalor and poverty, but in fact, emotionally, you live in that kind of dark dungeon. Jesus comes offering us the strength and the power to leave that miserable place or that miserable relationship or that miserable drug addiction or whatever it is that's captured us. He offers us shalom, which is provision. Remember, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you that the pagans are running after. Grace and peace be multiplied. In other words, in abundance. Verse 3, this is Second Peter 1, verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. What I want you to hear today is that you are being called to leave your dungeon. Whatever that dungeon is, God does not intend for you to live in that squalor, in that evil, dark dungeon where you get beat up. Some of you are so bruised, you're so miserable, and others of you are likewise, but you have medicated yourself with all the modern drugs of our age whether it be food or internet or movies or whatever it is, it's what makes us feel better. But listen to this, verse 4. This is the very heart of this issue. For by these, that is by true knowledge, learning how God works, by his own glory and his own excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption. And that word corruption in the Greek, it can also refer to a bowl of fruit 
that is utterly stinking and rotten that you would never put in your mouth. To escape the stench that is in the world by lust. Lust is just the way we try to satisfy the hunger of the heart. Whether it's lust for food or entertainment or sex or whatever the lust is of the flesh. Well, he's saying to us that we can participate and partake of the divine nature of God himself by way of the promises of God. So the question we're going to deal with all this week is how do you activate the promises of God? How do you activate the promises of God? Now, there's a promise that has been incredibly important in my life, and it's one that I still go to and I still use. I was using it this morning in the prayer closet. I want to read it for you. Now, the question, again, I'm going to ask is, how do we activate this specific promise? Because everything from God is contained in this promise. This is how we begin to participate in the divine nature and escape the dreadful places of beating and unhappiness and misery that we find ourselves in because of trying to take an easy path. on the left side of the straight and narrow. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know that that Christian asked the man at the narrow gate, how will I know which is the right path to take? His answer was very interesting. Don't ever take a crooked path. Always take the straight and narrow path. Every wrong path will be crooked and wide. So take the narrow path. That's the path that leads to life. All right, let me read this incredible promise. I know you've read it before and it's familiar, but let's look at it in terms of not just conceptual, but actual. How do you activate this promise? How do you make it come alive for you? It's found in Mark, the 11th chapter. And Jesus is saying to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen. It will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you for your transgressions. Pretty incredible promise. 
Now, how do you activate it? Well, there are conditions. And one of the conditions, a primary condition, is given, saying, if you're praying and asking me to answer your prayer about a financial need or physical need or relationship need, do you have anything against anybody? Are you holding a grudge in your heart? He's saying the condition to activate this promise on your behalf is to forgive those who have wronged you. Now I tell you, that can be a very expensive proposition. I had a very large sum of money, tens of thousands of dollars, stolen from me. And I know who did it. I considered going to court. I prayed about it. You know what the Lord said to me? Forgive them and let it go and take the loss. It's only money. Don't you think I can give you much more back? And because I need this promise activated... I forgave those tens of thousands of dollars that were stolen from me, and I let it go. And I hold no grudge. I hold no grudge. Because if I don't forgive others for their debts, remember the Lord's Prayer? The Lord says... Forgive those who have trespassed against you. Those who have created a debt with you, forgive them. If you don't forgive them for their sin, the Lord said, I will not forgive you for your sin. And one of the conditions for God to answer your prayer is that you forgive those who have harmed you. You forgive those who have who have stolen from you, who have slandered you, who have undercut you and caused you to have great harm in your life. Is it your life or is it God's life? I have found that as I meet the conditions, and we're going to speak much this week about the conditions that God expects for us to have our prayers answered. I've learned that God will answer prayer. I take the measure of a Christian man or woman based on can they go into the prayer closet and shut the door? Can they pray? And based on their prayer closet time with Jesus... Can they cause things to be changed in the physical realm? If you cannot pray and have things changed and transformed in the physical realm, you're in trouble because you're not going to escape the dungeon the devil will cast you into. Some of you are so far away from Jesus that if you got sick, 
you'd die before you could get to God. Because you have not met the conditions for having your prayers answered. One of my favorite writers, I had his book here a minute ago, it's it's Guy Bevington with Miracles. He says, I constantly am checking to make sure that I'm meeting the conditions for my prayers to be answered. He's probably had more people healed than almost any other person in the modern age as he's prayed for the sick and the dying. This passage of Scripture, I've taken all the way to the bottom. I've cried out over this passage. I've prayed it day after day. You know what what Luke 11 says. Ask, seek, knock, and don't give up. God wants to know if we're serious. And once he determines that we are serious and not simply wanting to be consumers of of what he's willing to give, but we're actually going to meet the conditions and we're going to forgive those who have wronged us, he will answer our prayers. I know I'm on this radio broadcast because God hears this prayer. I... I prayed this prayer all day, Thursday and Friday. I prayed this prayer asking the Lord to move in power to open the way for this broadcast to continue. And I finally, after praying and waiting before him, prayed through. And I knew that my prayer had been heard and that he would answer and that he would send the necessary funds, which are far beyond my ability, to pay for July radio. Now, I tell you that not to tell you to give. I'm telling you because this is very real in my life. If I don't activate the promises of God in the prayer closet, in the privacy of my prayer closet. Now, I'll share another issue. Personal finances. I don't take money from the National Prayer Chapel for my personal finances. The Lord asked me quite a number of years ago now, are you willing to receive from my hand only that which I give you? And I said, yes. From that day forward, I've not been on a salary. I have only what Jesus wants to give me, and I'm not allowed to ask anyone else. I don't come on this radio and say, brothers and sisters, my car is crashing. I need to get a new car. Would you be willing to rally and help me buy a new car? I don't come and say that. I'm not allowed to. And by the way, it's not true. My car is not crashing. You know what I paid for the car I'm driving 
not one penny. A precious Christian came to me out of the blue, out of Jesus, and said, Pastor, we have a car we're not using. We'd like to give it to you. Could you use it? I said, absolutely. Thank you very much. And I've now put almost 100,000 miles on that car. Well, do you hear what I'm saying? We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to twist and turn. God's promises are true. But they have to be activated. And that's why we're going to spend this week talking about, praying about, how to activate the promises of God so that we can escape wickedness. So that we can escape the dungeon, the dark dungeon where we're constantly getting beat up. I want you free. I want you rejoicing. I want you happy. I want you filled with excitement and joy about Jesus. The only way that can happen is if you activate and stand by faith on the promises of God. Now, the promises of God come to us in one of two ways. There are promises of God found in the scriptures, and I've been, I just bought a a new Bible. And I've been going through, and you know what I'm doing? I'm underlining first all the promises of God that he's given to me. Because those promises are my lifeline to the divine nature that I want to be fully participating in. So, the promises of God come in the Logos, in the written word. But the promises also come in a second way. Remember Joseph. He was given a dream. And in the dream, in two dreams, he was given very specific promises about what was going to happen in the future in his life. So the rhema word of God is spoken into our hearts, either in dreams or in some other way. We hear God speaking. And we stand by faith on those promises. Now God, when I was nine or ten years of age, gave me open visions. And I saw myself at my current age. And he showed me what he was going to do with revival in America. Not only what, but where and how. I stand by faith on those promises. And I pray, I don't just take them for granted, I pray, Mark 11, over those promises. And I ask that the devil not be allowed to block to block the promises of God in my life. That's why I can't afford not to forgive those who wrong me. I can't hold grudges against anyone. And I urge you, make a, a list of all the grudges you might have in your heart or people who've harmed you and go through that and forgive them one by one. Then make another list of all the people you've hurt 
and go and make it right with as many as you can. Well, we're out of time for today, but this is the direction we're going this week. I pray you'll share this with family and friends. If you're on the internet, would you please subscribe? Hit the like button. That will help Google spread a a word even further. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I thank you today for your great and precious promises by which we can participate in the divine nature. I ask, Lord, that you would quicken those promises in our hearts and our minds, that not one of us would remain in Doubting Castle, that not one of us would be trapped in that dungeon, but we would find a way of escape by the key, the precious promises found in the Scriptures. Lord Jesus, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, God bless you. I'm glad you listened today. Share with someone else and invite them to listen. It's going to be a a great week together. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray from the National Prayer Chapel. I'll talk to you soon.